Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We've got to have a general fitness platform before we go specific, and therein lies our biggest problem. We try to have specific fitness attributes before we have a general fitness base with which to build that, that house upon. So number one, can you squat down, heels flat, butt down to heels, and rest in a squatting position? Because you got to realize that the majority of the world still does number two in that position. And they're not up on their toes. And sometimes number two takes more than 15 seconds. So can you rest in a squatted position? And what I mean by rest is can you cover a minute without pain uh, or fatigue? Because if you're fully rock bottom squat, your quads aren't engaged and your core isn't engaged. And this is not supposed to look like the squat where I would have a sandbag on your back or where you'd have a straight bar on your back. Most people don't poop in a position that looks like you're supposed to look in the bottom of the squat rack. And if you did try to poop in the squat rack position, it wouldn't go well for you. So people see squatting and they try to impose exercise rules on squatting. Can you rest in a squat for one minute without pain or fatigue? Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is, of course, the guest for this episode, physical therapist and strength coach and educator, Gray Cook. Now, a few months ago, before I took a little hiatus, I had Gray's business partner on the podcast, Lee Burton, and this episode was recorded back in 2017. Yep, 2017. And I wanted to speak with Gray about movement. Now, just so you, just so you know, one of my most recent interviews I re-released was with Gary Gray, and this is with Gray Cook. They are two different people, but they are connected, and, and, and here's why. Because years ago, when, when Gray Cook, who I interviewed in this episode, was starting out as a physical therapist, he was heavily influenced by Gary Gray. And, and Gray, Gray Cook, took this information, and he's been on this journey for a number of years, so not only is Gray, Gray Cook a physical therapist, but he's also a strength coach. So what Gray did was Gray took this concept of movement and, and looked at the athletes that we train 
and said, wait a minute, if we want our athletes to be to try to be injury free, if we want to help our athletes be injury free with their exercise program, we need to train them the way they move and we need to understand how we can help them move better. So a number of years ago, Gary and Lee created something called the functional movement screen. And you can hear Lee go into detail about this. And again, I'll link down to that, that interview with Lee down below. But Lee and Gary created something called, sorry, Lee and Gray Cook. <laughs> See, I get confused too. Lee Burton and Gray Cook created the functional movement screen. And what the functional movement screen is, it's seven movements that you can do with a person, generally a personal trainer or a coach with a client. And what you're doing is you're watching your client move so you can understand, oh, where are their restrictions? They maybe have a restriction in their hip. They maybe have a restriction in their thoracic spine. So we need to fix those restrictions or help them get better without increasing the risk of injury. That's what a movement screen does. It's not meant to diagnose. It's not meant to try to identify something to heal. A movement screen is just meant to understand what is your movement status now and what do I need to do to help you move better? What do I need to do as a coach or a trainer to help you move better? Gray Cook is one of those people that really introduced this concept. The functional movement screen, which Gary and Lee created, is now used with the military, with law enforcement, with fire services to help people move better. That's exactly what you're going to hear on this episode. On this episode, originally recorded a few years ago, I'm rerunning it here. Gray Cook, physical therapist and strength coach, talks about the importance of first starting with movement before introducing load. Here we are with Gray Cook, one of the creators of the functional movement screen. My little town in Chatham, Virginia has one stoplight and our biggest claim to fame so far is we are the exact same zip code as where the Discovery Channel first started filming Moonshiners. So that tells you uh, what, we're, <laughs> what we're known for. I'm a 51-year-old physical therapist. Uh, I'm a certified Olympic weightlifting uh, certified in kettlebells, certified in Pilates mat work, uh, certified in dry needling. Uh, basically, I, if, if I'm not credentialed in it, you really won't hear me talking about it or publishing about it. I have a lot of other opinions, but I feel those those should probably wait till I have uh, more information. But uh, I'm a physical therapist. I'm a strength coach. I spend pretty much 50% of my time with a foot in each profession. Really removing the areas of gray between the two. And maybe that's why that's my name. It's, uh, you know, Gray Cook. It's a short name, short for Grace, and it's an old Southern name. But I do. I find that that the way we talk about movement and the things we do to fix it do not follow a systematic process. And therefore, rehabilitators, fitness professionals, performance professionals, and PE teachers don't even speak the same language, yet we're working on the same body at a different stage of development with the same friggin' parts and same software. So why shouldn't we have better communication and accountability when we step in between you and nature and decide we're going to develop you better than your environment? Well, that, that's an important consideration. It, one thing I want to, to ask you about with your background, because you, you mentioned you mentioned your age and you've been doing this for a while. Which, which came first, being a physical therapist or being a strength coach? You're not going to believe this. I became a certified strength coach and a physical therapist in December of 1990, the exact same year, because the only downtime I had to study for my CSCS was on my clinical affiliations right before graduation from University of Miami as a physical therapist. So believe it or not, my last two internships in physical therapy, I picked with people who were better at strength conditioning 
than they were at physical therapy. I knew I was going to get a lot. I was going to be flying jets, doing dry needling and manipulations later. So I tried to make my clinical affiliates in very, very sports-dominated, fitness-dominated environments, preparing myself for the ounce of prevention that's worth a pound of cure. Meaning if these clinics, if these physical therapy clinics are really on the cutting edge of fitness, on the cutting edge of rehabilitation, then shouldn't they too also have some pearls about prevention? Because otherwise, we're just capitalizing on the the, the ignorance and, and media that, you know, food companies, drug companies, and equipment companies want you to buy into, which is you need all this shit to be fit. And really, you don't need anything but space to be fit. And so who are your early influences? Who'd you, who'd you learn from? You went to University of Miami. Uh, who was kind of the ones that kind of got you, got your brain going to think a little bit outside the norms of how they traditionally do physical therapy? Well, um, it happened at physical therapy school. Um, I, I, I was a jock in high school. I was not an academic when I went to college. Uh, I opted not to play football because all the, all the schools that wanted me to play football basically tried to funnel me into a physical education degree and all the schools that had a sports medicine or athletic training or pre-physical therapy curriculum didn't have football. So at that point, I looked in the mirror and said, well, you're not going pro. So um, why don't you invest in what you are going to be a pro in? So I basically went to went to PT school um, and I was going to be the sports medicine guy, probably on the sideline, probably in the weight room that was connecting everything. And then all of a sudden I I met this professor named Rose Ryan. She pulled me aside and she goes, listen, I I know you need a a GA ship to stay here because you're one of the students that's, you know, largely paying their own way. I need a neuro GA, which means you're going to have to learn neuro six months before your classmates and help me teach it. But I will give you that opportunity and I know you can use the money. And I'm like, I'm not interested in neuro because, you know, that's that's either little kids or strokes or or, you know, people in wheelchairs. And and Pete, I hate to say this, but I need closure. And when I'm looking at a kid with cerebral palsy or a 70 year old golfer who just had a stroke or somebody who's a paraplegic, I realize this is a long term thing. And I'm a very empathetic person. And that gets on you. And when you realize you can't fix the people in front of you. um, And first thing she said is, that's not what you're here to do. You're here to change the quality of their life, regardless of their disability. And I'm going to show you how to tap into the neurological system because everything you think you're doing when you're strengthening somebody's quads, it ain't what you think. You know, the most inefficient pattern you may have in a two mile run is the way you breathe. But yet when you go on the Internet, they're going to sell you shoes, arch supports, wraps for your knee and tell you how to hold your back when you run. But what if you're not even breathing right? Then the fatigue that you feel at mile two is actually an unfinished breathing pattern. And how long is it going to take you to find that out? at a running store. You're never, they're never going to mention it because there's too many other products to basically distance you from your activity and reduce the feedback loops that nature is trying to give you. You run loud. That means you don't strike the earth with integrity. We don't build you a softer shoe. We tell you to run barefoot, but do it in half mile burst uh, and do a lot of barefoot walking. And six months from now, you'll be able to run without somebody hearing you. But Western culture doesn't have time for that. I want a big old shoe that disconnects me from my environment so I can't hear the lack of integrity with which I strike the ground. Rose got me thinking outside saying, listen, from zero to three, Pete, this is going to blow you away. From zero to three, 
internationally, worldwide, we, regardless of our cultural differences, all look at movement the same way. That means we have developmental milestones. So if one of your daughters doesn't have head control, eye tracking, the ability to roll, the ability to crawl, the ability to kneel, squat, stand, step, and run at certain ages, we pull her away from you and evaluate her. Meaning there's a huge window to acquire crawling, but you can't be past that window or you're going to miss a vital, vital component to your next level of development, the way your brain, your body interact, your spatial awareness, your movement pattern map. So isn't it ironic that from zero to three, all the way around the globe, you will find people that largely agree that if a child's patterns aren't at a certain quality by a certain age, they are going to have some developmental problems. And now we can justify an intervention and evaluation that explains maybe why that child isn't rolling. Is it a sensory disturbance? Is it a mobility problem? Is it a motor control problem? Is it an awareness issue? All right. But after that, we don't screw around with them. If they got their vital signs and they're making their movement milestones, we don't mess with these kids and they do great. But what happens after three? Well, now we got to get them in dance. Now we got to get them in gymnastics. Now we got to show them what a golf ball is. And all of a sudden, we in fitness, in medicine, in sports performance, quit looking at you as a moving bag of patterns and start looking at you as a big bag of parts. And so when you have a knee problem, we immediately assume that your knee pain is a knee issue. It's not. It could be a foot issue, a back issue, a neurological issue, a balance issue. And your knee is one of the things your body is sacrificing because you won't listen. You keep persisting in an activity with a lack of integrity. So the, the biggest thing that I saw is most people on the internet assume the problem is where the pain is. And I tell you what, that's the kiss of death if you make your money as a medical practitioner or clinician. We are obliged to not only look at everything else, but help you understand why this area has pain. And when the MRI looks good, but your back feels bad, that doesn't mean you're nuts. That means we've got some other work to do. Now, I can prove you're nuts by saying everything else is good too, or I can find that, you know what? Your balance is off on that left leg. And until I slow you down and watch you stand on one leg, I'll never see it because you will hide your mistakes and you will compensate dynamically much better than you can when I reduce you to a static pattern. So my whole um, thirst for this, this movement screen, movement vital signs, if you will, every other system in the body has vital signs that we largely agree on for gender and age appropriateness. We don't have vital signs for movement, and yet I can do two clicks on my computer and find prepackaged programs for people who say their fitness package will change my life. They don't know anything about me. Pandora knows me better than my personal trainer because <laughs> Pandora asked me more questions than my personal trainer. Well, on that, you're well known. I mean, you're well known for this in, in the idea, and I don't know if you're one of the ones that kind of coined the term but for preventative physical therapy. And you're talking about this a little bit, so we'll just jump right into it. What does that mean? I mean, you, we talk about movement, and what I want what I want to ask you about for, for listeners is to describe the stability-mobility relationships in the body and why we need to be thinking about how we can avoid injury. I mean, what in your experience, what are the most common causes of injury in our recreational activities? 
I can give you I can give you the the, the top five because I've lectured on this uh, so extensively. The the first two and best predictors of an injury in in your future, my future, our daughter's future, is a previous injury episode and the severity of that injury. So the fact that you've had an injury already actually says you're more predisposed to have another, and the severity of that injury will escalate that value. Now. Unless we can go back in time, neither of those statistics can be influenced today or tomorrow because it's in the past. The next three predictors of an injury are pain on any movement test. Okay, so if I tell you to deep squat, I don't care whether you can or can't. The first thing I worry about, Pete, is does it hurt? That's a completely different category in movement screening than do you have stiff ankles and can you not get in a squat? That is the second question a movement screen asks. The first one is can you cover these positions? Because the American Medical Association Physical Therapy, we have – how far each joint in your body should move. We measure that with a goniometer, and you can even get apps on your iPhone that'll help measure that now. Just make sure you're looking at it right. There are certain mobilities that you should possess if you want to have a normal movement life. And what we did with the movement screen is instead of saying, lay on the table, I'm going to look at your big toe, and then I'm going to look at your ankle, and then I'm going to look at your knee, instead of evaluating your mobility on the, on the treatment table, we say, hey, let me see you do a deep squat because all we're really doing is now using your ankles, hips, back, and, and knees together, but none of the patterns in, in the movement screens that we endorse take you outside of what the American Medical Association, the Physical Therapy Association, the Chiropractic Association, the Personal Trainer Certificates. We're showing you normal range of motion but used in a pattern by a living biological organism, and that's different than a car up on blocks where all four wheels spin so you assume it'll roll. You can't make that assumption with a human movement system. We can vet mobility, and if mobility is good and you still can't move, then we know you have a motor control problem. You don't coordinate your pelvis, your hips, your abs, your core, and your shoulders together. You have the ability from a mobility standpoint to squat you have not squatted in so long that you don't know how to organize your parts into a systematic pattern. So the next mistake that, that we make is we, we look at mobility, but then we only want to look at it in one pattern. And by me being able to look at your movement patterns, both in primitive patterns like push-up or plank or leg raise or squat, hurdle, step, and lunge on your feet. We've got seven different patterns in our original movement screen. And the very first thing that the industry try to do is say, well, what three patterns do you like the best? And I'm like, well, what three fingers do you like the best? I need a whole hand to do a whole job. And by shortening a movement screen that you don't understand before you've ever done one is simply you telling me you don't have enough time to aim before you shoot or you're going to rush a job that you don't even understand yet. So I've always said, slow down a minute. Let's get a full array. Let's get a thumbprint of the way this person moves because Pete, something has emerged in our research that even blindsided me. Let's say I have a classroom and I've got 50 people in it and I show silhouettes of a perfect butt to heel squat a really, really mobile lunge that doesn't require any spine compensation. I have like, you know, five or six different silhouettes. You can't tell the age. You can't tell the sex. It's just a human form moving. And I'm going to ask everybody in this room, can you squat? 
like that. Yes, no. And the second question, if you did attempt that, would it hurt regardless of whether you could squat or not? Here's what we find. The room splits in the middle. And we have people who don't think they can cover patterns they can. And we have people who think they can cover patterns that they can't. So the very first thing that I do with a movement screen is make sure that your confidence and your reality are on the same page. Because I think you ask the question at risk. If you've got a balance problem, pain with a movement, or fail some type of movement screen, you're at greater risk for injury. But how about the person who thinks they can move in more elegant and complex ways than they can? They're going to put themselves at risk because of an awareness problem. But if I turn over the coin, how about all the people who don't think they can move but yet can, they're missing an opportunity to challenge and feed their their movement system. So it's going to erode as well for lack of challenge or stress. So number one, if you've got pain with movement, you've got a health problem until a healthcare professional says you don't. You got to find a good health professional and you got to find somebody who's fitness aware. But our one mantra is if I do a fitness screen, a movement screen on you and you have pain, don't ask me for a fitness solution to a healthcare problem. However, let's agree. Let's just get you back on track on fitness for two to four weeks. Let's avoid the pattern that's hurting you. And in four weeks, if we still have not changed that pattern by working on everything else we can, then I think we would both agree. Let's pull in a physical therapist or a chiropractor who speaks fitness, who speaks independence and sustainability in my fitness and wants to get me back on track. They're not seeing 30 visits when I walk in the door. They're seeing, I want to help this person. And the quicker I get you out of here, the quicker I get somebody else in. Every client I've ever had in in rehabilitation, I try to put myself out of business by getting them back on track. And at some point, making their fitness somewhat sustainable and somewhat independent. If they choose to upgrade and work with you because they want to run an ultra or learn to rock climb, then I highly recommend that. If they just basically want to play with their grandkids and mow their own grass, I'd like to get them there and not think that they got to see me every Thursday to do that. Well, it's interesting you say that because in, you know, when the last year or two that that was personal training full time, um, for my career, that was my approach that I took to took with clients, and I'm sure I probably picked up some of that influence from from attending your lectures. But what I found, Gray, is, is the more I tried to work myself out of a client, the more they stayed with me. And yeah, I really because my goal was to co- coach them up so they could exercise on their own because I didn't want them to I didn't want them to have to rely on me. I wanted to kind of release that freedom. So it, it's good to hear to hear you say that. Now let me stop for a second because. A lot of people, I think, when they come into the gym, focus purely on strength in mere muscle. Is it possible to develop strength without first having an underlying foundation of mobility? Why or why not? It, it is possible, but it ends very bad. Okay? If, if it used to be assumed when the 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid finds out what a bench press is and and you and I both found out what a bench press is. And, you know, we thought girls were looking at our pecs. Somebody should have told us they were looking at our butts. You know, we've done more deadlifts than, than bench press. But anyway, um, most coaches will tell you when a kid adds 50 to a hundred pounds to their bench press, they're going to give up shoulder mobility to get it right. It's just an assumption. If, if, if I do heavy back squats with a kid, 
eventually they won't squat as deep or as organized as they did. Now, I'm not saying squats or bench press is bad because there's a lot of people out there that have used every variation of the bench but not given up shoulder mobility to get there. But if our conversations are more about the strength maneuver, then what do I want to gain and what do I not want to lose getting this? then it works out better. So a lot of the reason I run seven patterns on the movement screen is if you and I are working on your senior rugby uh, skills, we're going to work on that lunge. That's deceleration. That's direction change. That's how you lower your center of mass. That's basically how you stay on your feet in a full-on field-based contact sport. But if we're so obsessed on your lunge that we screw up one of your other patterns, then I'm going to know it before you do, because if I've got this baseline of screens and say, I want to see these two movement get, patterns get better without robbing from Peter to pay Paul without these two getting worse, the only way I can professionally exercise that influence is if I set a baseline first. So I always know that people will set the baselines they want to change. You and I know if you're personal training and trying to lose weight and your trainer isn't doing some calculation of body comp then they can pretty much, you know, tell you a lot of things about weight loss they shouldn't be telling you. If I'm doing body comp, I can justify your shape is changing, but your weight is not because we're reorganizing. So body comp makes a lot of sense. But what if I got your body comp right and your blood pressure went through the roof and your balance became horrendous? Then you'd be like, man, something, something's not right. Well, we got to do that in movement as well. And so if I make you stronger, but I hurt your flexibility, if, if I improve your power, but uh, hurt your balance, if I get you lifting, but now your posture when you throw is off the charts, bad, then, then I've done something because my view of what I tried to give you in fitness was very myopic. Um, and I swear, man, go to a conference and get – um, everybody in the room to give you a three sentence definition for strength can be applied to universally, can be applied universally. And you're going to have your marathon guy who has a different evaluation of strength than a powerlifting guy. And your MMA guy has a completely different valuation of strength. But if we get back to it, it's, it's not that much. It starts with, can you control your own body in all the positions that a normal person should possess? Then we start looking at locomotion and manipulation. Can I lift things and can I cover distance and space, right? But we don't even have body control. And then we think, all right, on this lack of body control, I'm going to get stronger. Well, that's like saying my steering's really loose. I think I'll just go faster. That, that, that never ends well, you know? Well, I've heard you explain that, that, you know, and I like that car analogy, because a lot of people, you know, maybe listening to this in a car, but they can relate to that. That if you, if I try to add strength without without first working on mobility, that's like dropping in a bigger engine. But I'm not paying attention to what you just said, either the steering or the brakes, because I'm giving my my body the ability to do more work, but I can't do anything with it. And, and I think, you know, I'm not a huge car guy, but I know if I if I up the engine, if I up my horsepower, I better damn well be upping my braking power as well in order to make sure that, that my, I know how to handle that horsepower. So to, get, so to help people understand like the application of this, what do you think is like a quick little self-assessment somebody could do to check, somebody listening could do to kind of check on their mobility? Because you know, I think a lot of people come in and they start working out and they think they're getting fit 
And, and I have to be careful because I work with a machine company, which shall, shall remain nameless. But machines can help people get really strong, but they do it. They're not working on the full, full mobility of a joint. So somebody listening to this, how could they just give themselves a little quick self-assessment to, to say, okay, maybe I should start working on my, my mobility before I start adding a lot of muscle? All right, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a few that are derivations of the movement screen, and, and believe it or not, Pete, you're probably going to see coming out of our camp in about six months a pretty organized movement screen that you can do on yourself. And if we stand an iPhone up about eight foot away, it's going to be pretty spot on. I still, I'll, I'll never say it's as good as having uh, a movement professional in the room with you because I'm not trying to put movement professionals out of business. What I am trying to do is get them to follow a standard operating procedure. And you know, this, this whole thing, you, you coined the term, you threw it out there, Preventative physical therapy, in my opinion, shouldn't be practiced by physical therapists. Preventative physical therapy should be practiced by PE teachers, yoga instructors, uh, drill instructors on a 10-mile hike, martial arts instructors, and on and on and on. Meaning if we understand which domino to knock over first in this human movement development sequence, we'll always do, do well. We've got to have a general fitness platform before we go specific, and therein lies our biggest problem. We try to have specific fitness attributes before we have a general fitness base with which to build that that house upon. So number one, can you squat down, heels flat, butt down to heels, and rest in a squatting position? Because you got to realize that the majority of the world still – does number two in that position. And they're not up on their toes. And sometimes number two takes more than 15 seconds. So can you rest in a squatted position? And what I mean by rest is, can you cover a minute without pain uh, or fatigue? Because if you're fully rock bottom squat, your quads aren't engaged and your core isn't engaged. And this is not supposed to look like the squat where I would have a sandbag on your back or where you'd have a straight bar on your back. Most people don't poop in a position that looks like you're supposed to look in the bottom of the squat rack. And if you did try to poop in the squat rack position, it wouldn't go well for you. So people see squatting and they try to impose exercise rules on squatting. Can you rest in a squat for one minute without pain or fatigue? Number two, can you do a clean toe touch? And I would rather see you be able to touch your fist to the ground. But if you can get your fingertips on the ground without bending your knees and your feet are right together, then that tells me something about your spine. If you're lying on the ground uh, prone, uh, face down, and were to press your chest up off the ground while leaving your pelvis on the ground, that sort of looks like a yoga move, right? Does your low back hurt? I don't care if your pelvis comes up off the ground, but can you get your arms locked and breathe in that position without any low back pain or difficulty breathing? So we've got a forward bend, a backward bend that's sort of passive right there. The last one is take off your shoe or a flip-flop, go over top of your head holding it in your right hand, reach your left hand behind your back and come up behind your back, sort of the buckle the bra strap maneuver with your left hand and see if you can pass that shoe from one hand to the other with holding a couple of inches of the shoe on each hand, not, you know, not just tip to tip on the shoe. So if you can go those reciprocal patterns behind your back, left and right, one over the top, one down and under and pass that shoe behind your back. If you can touch your toes, uh, and still breathe while you're doing it without pain, if you can relax and do a squat and do a prone press up, 
there's a good chance that if you have a movement problem, it's going to be more specific to say golf or throwing a fastball or some new water skiing movement you're trying to try. You've covered the general angles that I need you to cover. Does that mean you're fit? No, that just means I'm not going to run into a mobility problem that's going to make you obliged to compensate next time I show you a Turkish getup or introduce you to Indian clubs or battling ropes. So by getting that mobility vetted first, I know this is a motor control problem. I'm going to blend experience, coaching, and physical problem solving to help you learn. Whereas if it's a mobility problem, it's like taking a kid who's colorblind into art class or a kid who's tone deaf into music class. When you don't move and the reason you can't move is mobility, then you actually have a sensory interrupt. And one of the data points we found out, we've got a little self ankle screen. The ankle is, is huge. It's the most injured body part when you're in high school. We all know that it's not fully rehabilitated. And sometimes people lose 10 degrees and they won't notice it in their youth, but it comes back to bite them later. If you can't cover 35 to 40 degrees of dorsiflexion or that ankle bending forward mobility with your heel flat on the ground, it's, it's a good chance it's probably your biggest problem, even if you come back and say, but my ankle doesn't hurt. Well, your neck could hurt when you're, when you're, you know, ankles out. So it doesn't matter, but just getting that ankle mobility is something that, that culture has taken away from us. Footwear has taken away ankle mobility and commodes have basically taken away squatting ability because many cultures, the only time they deep squat is bathroom or on a rest break when a chair isn't available. But that's enough deep squatting to keep squatting maintained until you're 80, even if you don't have access to a gym. It's just part of your lifestyle. And for for your listeners out there who want to hear a little bit more about movement but want me to talk not at a deep scientific level, last year I did a talk out at uh, Google. They're sort of like little TED Talks, but they go more than 15 minutes. And Google is – the master of search. They help you find what you're looking for and they don't really charge you for it. There's a lot of reasons. They want to know what you're looking for. And number two, they can sell you ads. Well, I went out there to say, we did the same thing with movement. We deconstructed movement. So if you're searching for a movement opportunity or a movement way to express yourself, these are all the things we're going to check before we stick you up with that, because that might not be what you're looking for. So I went out to Google and did a talk for their engineers about movement search. If we're trying to find out the movement, Pete, that you need to be doing right now, that'll have a meaningful change. Because I tell you, if I introduced you to a supplement you were lacking in your, in your diet, or I introduced you to a different way of sleeping or a pillow or something like that, and you immediately appreciated an extra REM cycle in your sleep or slept better, or I introduced a supplement and you're like, oh my gosh, that's, that's like three cups of coffee with no bad side effects. What if I could connect you with a movement that would do the same thing for you? I can, but the problem is people don't want to go through the analysis of of movement to find out which one of those is. And it's a little bit more complex sometimes than sleeping or just introducing a supplement. And and but we can we can do it. We can connect you, you know, with that movement and finding out what that movement is. You know, uh, if you're in pain, takes about 30 minutes. If you're not in pain, takes about 15 minutes. And, and it'll fluctuate and it'll change. But now, if we have a bad side effect, 
we've laid baselines on everything, not just the thing we want to improve. We laid baselines on the things we don't want to get worse, and we can't ensure that unless we measure it first. Well, and, and that's one of the cool things about what you're doing. And, and as, I've, as I've studied your material and read your books over the years, um, it really has forced me how to, you know, for me personally, you know, especially, you know, I'm in my, you know, in my mid-40s now, I really put a lot of heavy emphasis on mobility. And there are certain times when I know I'm busy and I got a lot of stuff going on, I don't even pick up a weight. I just go in the weight room and I do a lot of mobility work. And I, and I think we're starting to see more of that. Because I know your work has been, you're often quoted, Gray, by my guests, and your and your work is often featured in magazines like Men's Health. And I, well, I want to respect your time, and we're gonna start wrapping it up here. But one of the funniest phone calls I ever got was maybe about six or seven years ago from a buddy of mine who's in the special forces in the military, and he was cursing up a blue streak because he wanted to know who the hell you were and what the heck the FMS was. Um, cause apparently he didn't do, he didn't do well on it. He, he came back, he has a, he, you know, he got, had knee injury when he was last, one of the last times he was in, he was in Afghanistan and he got put into a, a rehab protocol based on his uh, inability to perform the movement screen. How many, and I always make this mention when I put, when I put somebody through the movement screen, I always make a mention that a number of top level movers are using the movement screen. How many people are now, what, how many sports, how many outfits are now using your movement screen and what you've really talked about as the foundation of their training protocol. Um, it's a, it's a legit station at the NFL combine, just like the bod pod for body composition and, and the 40 yard dash. Uh, we are at the NHL, uh, combine. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're represented throughout the special forces getting into big Navy and big army, uh, is, 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 is harder because there's so many moving parts. But the funny thing is, the early adopters, uh, Duke University, Stanford University, uh, Springfield uh, College, the early adopters that, that both have to do, you know, development and they, they have a, a, a good knowledge of rehab and prevention, um, they've adopted our model. And, you know, when I first presented the movement screen at the NSCA, gosh, uh, maybe 99, 2000, the first thing I said on stage, I had Mark Verstegen standing right beside me. He was one of the models going through the, the movement screen. As I said, there's going to be a better movement screen one day, okay? Just like the guy standing there holding a compass a few hundred years ago probably envisioned there was going to be a GPS one day, even though he didn't know how it was going to work. We always know there's going to be something better. But let's not let uh, you know great be the enemy of good. I introduced a movement screen because it's a perspective nobody was looking at. And I swear, man, the people at the top of our profession that still realize I'm good and I still can't change X, those were the people that that took it first. And so when we've done everything else, when you have the resources, when you have the time and still can't make a difference, that's when people say, ah, let's come at it with a different perspective. And so where people are incentivized to uh, sell more memberships and have more rehabilitation days – you're not going to see them looking for solutions. When an NFL team is incentivized to get a running back back quicker, they will then look at our stuff and say, hey, have you got a better way to do this? So, you know, you and I both both realize um, it's it's a hard pill to swallow. And I want you to call your buddy who was mad at me and you tell him that uh, I don't do well on the movement screen either. I've had 18 fractures and I got a steel plate in my neck and uh I still got quite a few physical problems. So if I were really a self-serving, you know, person, I would have created a movement screen that I did really well on and nobody <laughs> else did. But I stuck at the movement screen, but 
I've got a constant feedback loop, just like I can check my movement screen, I can check my cholesterol, and I can check my body comp, and I know which one I'm going to work on first, because which one is ever furthest from normal is probably going to help the other two, right? So it's, it's, it's very elegant, and, and it's, it's humbling to be a somebody who's paid to be physically dominant, like a pro athlete or a special operator. But the only way I can help you is do the one thing for you nobody else is. I'm going to roll you over and look at your soft underbelly and tell you where your next opponent, whether it be the environment or an enemy or a competitor, is getting ready to exploit your weakness. Because that's what the environment and, and, and opponents and, and enemies do. They, they quickly pattern our weakness and expose it. And so what we're doing with this movement screen is I've always told people, never tell somebody how, how they did on a movement screen. It's none of their damn business unless they ask, but you're going to show them in a few minutes how when they're doing a half kneeling chop or a balance beam, why they suck so bad on one side. And now there's something they can do about it. So I never let the movement screen sell the movement screen. I'm like, this is just a bunch of stuff I got to do on the front end. And then all of a sudden, once I know where your issue is, I take you right to an exercise or a little drill or movement that magnifies the problem on that left side mobility or that right side balance or your inability to hold posture in one position, but you can in another. And I let that exercise then articulate Oh, that's why my left and right side are tearing me in half. One's trying to do one thing, one's trying to do the other. So the number one thing I've never tried to do is I don't expect a non-movement person to see any value in the movement screen whatsoever because it doesn't look like exercise. We made everything in the movement screen like we've got a narrow base lunge. We've got an inline foot squat. We've got a bunch of things that are a little bit harder than even the exercise position. But I know if you can cover that position from a mobility and motor control standpoint, we're not going to have any problems with a Turkish getup. We're not going to have any problems in the sun salutation, and we're not going to have any problems with the deadlift. Well, that gets me to actually one of the, one of my two final questions is what are your, you know, kind of your go-tos? And I think you just said them in all honesty. I think if, if I want to work on my mobility, and I know it's tough because you're not looking at an individual and you're giving general advice without knowing somebody's background. And, and the hard thing is for with, with, with people I interview like you, Gray, is you don't give, you know, definitive answers. You always have to couch it with, well, I'm not a hundred percent sure because I don't know who's going to use it. So I'm asking, this is kind of a general question. Would you use the deadlift, the Turkish get up and, and are there any other like moves that people could start implementing, you know, with, with or without weight that would start working on their mobility right away? You know what? If you've got somebody who can at least make sure you've got an appropriate load and a good back position, I think starting stiff people off on a wide base, like a sumo deadlift with their hands in between their knees instead of hands on the outside of the knees is probably more elegant than a liftoff. Now, I've worked in the NFL and I've had you know, NFL quarterbacks doing deadlifts and sometimes it's easier to give them a lift off or get them, get the weight up, but you already got it. Spread your legs and turn your deadlift into a squat because you don't have a deadlift yet. And if you work that, you're going to have a really sore groin for a few days, but guess what? Your toe touch is going to improve while you're working on your deadlift, or you could do it the other way around. Just work on your toe touch for a while. Now you know your hips are mobile enough not to sacrifice your back and round it in a deadlift. So almost every lift, whether it's a Turkish getup with a shoe on your fist, like me and Brett Jones used to do in the old days, because I'd have people stand up with a shoe, right? 
if you can't balance that shoe because halfway up the shoe falls off their fist, lands on their head. And I'm like, aren't you glad we didn't start with a kettlebell now? <laughs> you know, so I can take almost every move. And one of my favorites that I'm really playing with now, and, and Pete, I'm going to send you a set of Indian clubs, but I want to talk you through a certain ways because when I'm on the road, just like you, I got time for mobility. But if I don't do one thing, either fast or heavy after that mobility, it doesn't hit save on the document as well. So since I don't always have reproducible heavy on the road, I can travel with two one pound uh, Indian clubs and a jump rope and pretty much in a hotel room with an average size ceiling, I can basically get some Indian clubs done and some jump rope done and, and it keeps my strength up. Meaning if I don't deadlift for three weeks and go back to my deadlift, I still got it. But there's a difference in fast and heavy, and believe it or not, they feed the neurological system in really elegant ways. So it takes some strength to be fast, and it also takes some quickness to be strong. But the strength is in your stabilizers, and the quickness is in your stabilizers. And that's why one of the things we've gotten to with people who are trying to get strong, but they have mobility problems, is we go right back to the stuff me and Dan John talk about farmer's carries. Everybody can do farmer's carries and that, that load on your body actually forces you to erect yourself and to stack yourself in a really elegant way. So if you want to just go pure yoga and heavy carries, I can change your movement screen in a month. If you want to do Turkish get-ups with a little less weight than suits your testosterone level, you're going to get mobility and strength at the same time. If you insist on you know, bigger weight or faster speeds than you can cover, that's where they break down. And unfortunately, most of the blog posts we see about people's, you know, work out of the day, they comment on the quantity they did, not the quality they did. And I'm trying to get that qualitative conversation. Hey, if you deadlifted today, that's one thing. If you deadlifted in front of Brett Jones, that's a completely different thing. If you did farmer's carries today, if you did farmer's carries in front of Dan John, if you did kettlebell swings today, if you did them in front of Pavel, if you climbed a rock wall today, and if you did that in front of Erlon Juan LaCour, those are two completely different things, but we don't know how to talk about the quality of our exercise at a way that's sustainable. So we just talk about the quantities and hope you assume we did it right. Well, and I think that's a mistake that many people make, Ray, is when they go into the gym, they, they look at pure, you know, how much weight can I move? How much, you know, steel can I push as opposed to how do I feel? Can I, do I just feel better? You know, and, and I point out sometimes during, during workouts that my goal is not to have as a trainer, as a coach, my goal is I don't want you walking out crushed today. If you walk out crushed, I did my job wrong. What I want you walking out is feeling is feeling better. I want you walking out of the gym feeling 100% better than when you walked in. You know, if, I, if you walk out feeling crushed, then I've let you down. If you walk out feeling good and charged up, then that's what then I've done that. And, and I, I think you know, part of my approach to that is having learned from you. People that go through FMS, people have taken your courses, is there a way that somebody can go to your website and search and find a trainer in their area who's maybe gone through the functional movement screen and you guys can check out and vouch that they know how to apply it? Yeah, yeah. Now, everybody on our website has passed the, the, the test of the movement screen. You and I both know I can't control what they do in their own space. But one of the things we're doing, Pete, is we're building a – a complete software system. So if you go to somebody and they movement screen you within the next six months, they should be uploading that data, not only to our smart technology to help your trainer 
work through a lot of the many options because there's not one option to fix your movement screen. And the one thing I want your, your listeners to know is FMS isn't an exercise company. We're a movement baseline company. We embrace the fact that if, if you don't want to use weight, I can get you moving better. If you love Pilates, I can use what they're doing in Pilates to get you moving better. The, the neat thing is just keep running the movement baseline and you'll be able to see where your methodology is making a difference and where it's not. And we're not here to defend a methodology. A methodology in its fruit, in its action, should defend itself against what we would all consider to be a, a valid baseline. So you go right to our website, put in your zip code, it's going to let you know both the medical practitioners that take a movement, a head-to-toe approach in your rehabilitation, as well as the performance and fitness people who take a movement screen approach to your exercise development. And that's what we've tried to do is connect that community. These people are from completely different disciplines and everything, but they're trying to value movement the same way on the front end. And doesn't it make the same sense as an eye chart or a blood pressure? Regardless of the physician I go to, they have my eye chart and my blood pressure. What they do to help me out, uh, one person sees my eyes are getting a little weak and they put me on vitamin K and give me some eye exercises. The other person just hands me glasses right? We, I've got high blood pressure. One person hands me a bottle of pills. The other person talks to me about diet and lifestyle. So isn't it funny how even though these people disagree on solutions, they have all agreed on the way we're going to collect the data, the baseline. We know what's good. We know what's bad. As long as we can do that with movement, I think it'll fix itself. Meaning a lot of the stuff, you know, you know, battling ropes are good. Let's do battling chains. I don't know if that makes you move better or not. But I think it looks badass, but I'm just not sure if you've got a movement problem, that's going to change it. I'm pretty sure if ropes aren't enough for you, I think chains might keep you entertained a little bit longer. But that's that's where we get off, off the thing. I do not uh, think I need to endorse solutions or methodologies. I simply set a baseline. And if the methodology is not working for you, I'm not going to assume it's a bad methodology. I'm going to assume it may be misappropriated or not used in its entirety by maybe the, the group that developed that methodology. But I can't believe that movement has made it as far as it has in mind in your lifetime, and we still don't have a baseline. I mean, it wouldn't be any fun playing golf if we didn't have rules because everybody would think they want. Let's put some rules on movement. Let's, let's not base them in fitness or specialization standards. Let's base them in the one thing that we agreed on worldwide internationally, which is we need to own certain movement patterns at a certain level of quality within a certain amount of time between one and three. My question to the world is when is it okay to lose those cornerstones that are holding you up? Squatting is what got you walking. Walking is what got you running. Crawling is what got you climbing. Rolling is what used your core the first time. And is it ever okay to expect to run a 10K and not to do those things? And, that, and that's huge. And that's one of the reasons why I think that you're, you're so popular when you go out on the lecture circuit is because you're getting people woken up to that. And, and for listeners, if you have a personal trainer, if you work with a personal trainer and they're not familiar with Gray, uh, Gray's work or the functional movement screen, um, I can honestly say you, you better, you should look for a different personal trainer. I mean, I just, I think you're doing yourself a disservice with that. So Gray, I'm going to have all your contact information. I'm going to have your website. Your website's functional movement, correct? functionalmovement.com. Yeah. And, uh, 
the, the Google talk, you can just go right to Google and put uh, talks at Google, Gray Cook. Um, the one consumer book I got out there is Athletic Body and Balance. It was published in 03, and it's in about six different languages, and you can also get that on Kindle. Um, the Indian Club program we just put up, uh, you buy the Indian Clubs from Perform Better or wherever, we've got a card in there that's your home study course. I'm going to I'm going to send you two sets of those, and I want you to give one of those sets to your uh, military buddy who uh, doesn't like me, and he can he can uh, use those because I know exactly how humbling it is to go through a movement screen and not have movement that you used to have. However, I, I am intended on getting all the movement I can back, and I want you to uh, see the way we educate with the, with the Indian clubs. It's a very it's a very holistic form of posture and speed development. And it's about the only exercise I've seen that's as old as yoga and martial arts and obviously misappropriated in many places. But we tried to go back and dig up some of the old school stuff, the stall bars, the the jump rope that nobody does anymore, the Indian clubs, the balance beams. They're all unbelievably self-limiting, but they also provide you a wealth of feedback in a very natural way. And that's the way we, we learn to move you know, in the first place. So there's a couple of different ways people can tap into it. I like your recommendation. If you are working out with a trainer, they should easily be able to baseline your movement. And if they don't know about FMS, the one thing that I want most trainers to know is you can get certified in the FMS online because administering a movement screen isn't difficult. Fixing it and understanding the nuances of that is what we do in a corrective exercise course, our level two course. But getting the movement screen data collected doesn't doesn't take any more technology or time than CPR. We just got to do it the right way or we, we lose the standard. So the first cert that most people get, and we did this for international interest, was you can get certified in the movement screen online. I would definitely recommend find somebody who's got some reps to, to sort of help mentor you along. But doing the movement screen is not a hard test. It takes less than 10 minutes and it's not a big concept. What's hard is explaining to your client that they've been working out with you for two years and, you know, three out of seven movement patterns are still dysfunctional. <laughs> that's, that's a slice of humble pie. But I tell you what, if you go ahead and get it down, you're a better person the next day because you created a tighter feedback loop and you're not hoping your clients and patients get better. You're watching the gauges that they're not even aware of for three or four days. So I already know when my client's going to have a bad day and a good day based on their symptoms and signs and the way they blend. And that's why I tell people veterinarians are usually better diagnosticians than medical doctors because they're dealing with only signs. They're not dealing with symptoms and bitching and moaning and complaining and four internet articles that somebody brings into their exam. Right? <laughs> it's just, it is what it is. I, I got to find out why this poor dog is limping and he ain't going to tell me. And believe it or not, I could probably fix your limp quicker if you don't assume that you know where it's coming from. Because if you did, you should have fixed it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to wrap up, man. I appreciate your time. I really do. And I appreciate what you've done. I, as I shared with you, I think one of the last times I saw you, I, you know, I, I really, you know, having learned from you over the years, it's been invaluable to help my daughters. Who My daughters are now three and five. And as they learned how to move, um, I just put in a lot of stuff that I heard you talk about over the years. And it's really amazing to watch their physical literacy. So when they make uh, when they're in the Olympics in the 2030s, I'm going to send you a big thank you note and a big, I don't, I don't know what sport they're going to be in. Frankly, I don't really care. I just know, um, my job is to set them up on physical literacy, literacy for life. And, uh, you've been a big influence at, so I just want to say thank you and thank you for your time. 
No, I appreciate it. And even if they don't make the Olympics, if I have anything <laughs> to do with it, I want, I want this kind of presence to be in physical education. And right now we're throwing as much time and money at research for basically helping the PE teacher become as good as every other teacher in there. Meaning when you graduate from high school English, you can write letters and communicate. But when you graduate from high school PE, I'm not quite so sure you can squat and touch your toes. You know, I don't necessarily embrace all SOL or standards of learning, but if we don't have a movement-based standard of learning in PE class, then it's going to default just to which kids are athletes and which ones aren't. And I think everybody has the right to engage their environment and move whether they have a ball or turf involved or not. So I'm, I'm throwing a lot of my effort into realizing if we're going to fix this problem, we're going to fix it at five, at six, at seven. And my wife and I volunteer one day a week at uh, my, my youngest daughter's school. She's only in kindergarten right now. I've got two other daughters in, in college, but we're creating physical obstacles like balance beams and boxes to climb and ropes and stuff, but we don't tell them how to do it. We just let them do it. And at the end, we discuss how, do, how about trying this way? So we've got um, sandbags with the little kids. They have to do a partner's carry. Well, when your arm gets tired, just switch sides with the other person. You're both carrying one object. So we do physical problem solving and I tell you, Pete, it's been amazing. We don't teach movement. We just introduce an obstacle and then spend the last eight minutes of class talking about, well, if you do it tomorrow, are you going to do anything different? Who did you watch to learn how to do it better? Who did you watch to maybe learn what you were doing wrong? And, and we all get through it together. And so I just got performed better to give me a bunch of safe equipment down there, balance beams, sandbags, boxes to jump on, some one-inch battling ropes. And, uh, you know, we do stuff, but it's physical problem solving. And really, that's, that's what your military operator friend had too. We introduced a physical problem solving obstacle and he got frustrated. And that's the one thing I try to, to knock down as much as possible. Don't get frustrated. Get smart. Hey, you know? Hey, I really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to, uh, to see you sometime in the near future on the road. All right, first first uh, session with those Indian clubs. You might want to wear your bike and helmet. After that, you're good to go. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. That's always I, I always enjoy speaking with those guys with Gray with Lee. They really are two very smart guys, and and I can't tell you that Gray Gray's work Gray's book Movement was one of the first books I reference. It's one of the first books I reference anytime I write an article on movement or, or work on my books. My book, Smarter Workouts, Science of Exercise Made Simple, was heavily, heavily influenced by Gray Cook and Gary Gray and a number of other people I interview on the podcast. That's one of the reasons why I'm rerunning these interviews. I'm rerunning these interviews in this sequence. We have Gary, we have Gray, and then the next interview I'm releasing is with a professor of neuroscience to talk about how the brain learns movements. I like to try to, the way my brain works is I like to try to do things in sequences. I don't want to just drop an interview out of the blue. I want there to be some contextualizing to that. So right now, while I'm rereading or while I'm reading Smarter Workouts to you, I'm playing, I'm, I'm dropping some of these interviews in here. These are the people that heavily influence Smarter Workouts. So Gary, Gary, of course, was one of my mentors, um, one of my educators as I was coming up as a personal trainer. Gray Cook, same thing. I've taken the Functional Movement Screen Workshop, I don't know, two or three times. And not because I can't remember it, but because each time I've taken it, I've learned something new. And I've heard something new and I've learned a new approach. And, and Gray and Lee are such great instructors that it's just an amazing experience to go through their workshop. And, and look, to be honest, the real reason why I go through a Gray Cook workshop 
is Gray usually will have between 80 and 120 people, and it's phenomenal to watch Gray work and connect with and teach up to 120 people and really and be effective at it. And he has he has people that help him, but that's one of the reasons why I go to his workshops now is to really just watch the logistics and watch how they run and, and watch all the business back end. But anyway, that that's that's an aside. That's that's me being the operations geek. That's not me being an exercise science geek. That's operations geek Pete speaking. That just want to give you a little bit of background about why I'm rerunning these interviews. They really are they were very uh, very heavily influential for me. So there you go. I big, three big ones, Gray Cook, Gary Gray, and then the researcher John Krakauer is coming up next. And John really Dr. Krakauer, you're going to understand a little bit more about movement after these three. Hey, you can follow me at All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. It's All About Fitness Podcast on Instagram. And if you actually are listening to this part, shoot me an email, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. If you're still listening and said, hey, I'm listening right at the end of Great Cook. If you're still listening at the end and you shoot me an email and say, hey, I'm still listening at the end of Great Cook, Great Cook's episode, I'll send you an ebook. All right. So see if anybody's still listening on that. Shoot me an email, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com, uh, that you're still listening. I'll send this back to you. And hey, as always, thanks for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.